what does a nation need in order to produce economic growth? I'm not talking about this policy or that policy. What is the deep structure that a nation needs? John Cogan and Kevin Warsh on Uncommon Knowledge Now. Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge. I'm Peter Robinson. A fellow at the Hoover Institution and a member of the Stanford faculty, John Cogan served during the Reagan administration at the Department of Labor and in the Office of Management and the Budget. His most recent book, A Study of the Federal Budget, entitled The High Cost of Good Intentions. By the way, I should note that although I just introduced that as a study of the federal budget, and it is that, it's also a thoroughly readable and engaging book. A fellow at the Hoover Institution and again a member of the Stanford faculty, Kevin Warsh, served from 2006 to 2011 as a member of the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. Now John Cogan and Kevin Warsh have co-authored a study, Reinvigorating Economic Governance, Advancing a New Framework for American Prosperity. John, Kevin, Peter, welcome. All right. A brief overview of where we've been. Beginning in the mid-1980s, the economy starts to grow briskly, and it does pretty well with a couple of brief recessions, but it does pretty well for more or less a quarter of a century. And then things change. And the two of you write, I'm quoting your paper, Reinvigorating Economic Governance. Three major shocks of the 21st century undermine the economic ethos in each government policies that were once unthinkable became inevitable. Let's just go through those shocks really quickly to, on our way to today. The terrorist attacks of September 11th, 2001. Two planes are flown into the World Trade Towers. Another plane attacks the Pentagon and almost 3,000 Americans die in a single morning. How did those attacks affect the economy, John? Well, it certainly threw us into a deep economic recession. Uh, as you recall, right before those attacks, the economy was doing fine. Uh, we were, had a balanced budget, a strong economic growth, and 9-11 really threw us off in a very important way. Before 9-11, we had sort of believed that our country was safe from international uh, terrorist attack. This attack, the first attack since um, uh, Pearl Harbor, had a devastating impact on people's view about the future. No longer were we safe from international terrorists. It had come to our shores. And I think that threw our government off. And I think it threw a private industry off as well. There was this sense of uncertainty that we really hadn't confronted before. I see. Uh, financial crisis of 2008. Over a period of two weeks, the financial markets seize up Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers, gigantic, storied institutions on Wall Street fail. Instruments of all kind, but especially mortgage-backed securities, stop trading. And the recession that follows proves the worst since the Great Depression. President George W. Bush in December 2008, quote, I've abandoned free market principles to save the free market system, close quote. You were at the Fed when all of this is happening. How is it that what happens on Wall Street undermines the ethos, that's the word you fellows use in your paper, undermine the ethos of our economy. 
So I think it does it two ways. First, in the US, it showed the vulnerability of the banking system, but writ large of our financial markets. It showed that the US economy was not as resilient, as strong as many investors and business people, consumers believed. And as a result, for reasons of those exigent circumstances, the policy uh, judgment at the Federal Reserve and everywhere else was, we'll do whatever it takes. We'll go to the edges of our, of our legal authority. We'd go to the edges of what we thought would have previously been fiscally responsible. And we will get to the bottom of this and fight our way out. And the global financial crisis gave rise to what's now come to be known as quantitative easing, where the Federal Reserve buys the debt of the Treasury. At one point, if you had suggested to self-respecting central bankers in the US they do that, they'd think that was a Ponzi scheme. That's a banana republic stuff. The Treasury issues debt on Tuesday and Wednesday. The Fed buys it on Thursday and Friday. Certainly that's not the policy of the greatest economy in the history of the world. Fast forward from that day till this, and we see that quantitative easing became the de facto policy, not just in the US and not just in bad times, but in good times everywhere around the world until this inflation struck. So I think that's the first and the second. Right. I can just jump in. Sure. Um, before the global financial crisis, the rest of the world, our allies and adversaries, thought, well, those Americans, they certainly would know how to run an economy. And the global financial crisis suggested maybe we don't. So the soft power and the hard power of the U.S. Um, was really substantially hurt by that. And the legacy that you had talked about from the quarter century of prosperity right. was significantly impinged. Because if you don't really know how to bank, run a banking system, why should we be copying your policies on anything? All right. 2001 terrorist attack. 2008 financial crisis producing a, a, a deep, deep recession. Now we come to the one that we're just coming out from under. The lockdown, the, the COVID lockdown that begins in 2020. COVID spreads in the United States. As it spreads in the United States in the spring of 2020, the government, in effect, locks down the entire economy. It turns off the American economy. And in various forms, the lockdown would last much more than a year. The lockdown is over. People still wear masks here and there. There are arguments about recommendations whether we ought to get vaccinated. But people are allowed to go back to work. Well, why, why can't we just flip the switch and turn the economy back on. Again, you use this interesting word ethos. How did this lockdown undermine our ethos, economic ethos? So I think the real story behind the lockdowns is faced with this unprecedented uh, infectious disease. What did government do? It locked down the economy, as you said, Peter, and then it tried to make up for it with a massive amount of government spending. So it restricted individual liberties at the outset, kept those restrictions in place way beyond uh, what uh, I think the scientific community would now say was appropriate, and spent billions and trillions of dollars to try to make up for it. So much money, really. <laughs> for once, it really is impossible <laughs> even to imagine what that kind of money means. And, and when I think about these shocks, I think what's thrown the public off it's not so much necessarily just the shocks. I think it's the government's response to the shocks that has thrown the public off. The way the public saw the response to the Great Recession was we bailed out the banks. Thank you very much. 
the response to COVID is government restricting your liberties, your way of life, um, your ability to earn a living, and then trying to uh, make up for that with uh, the issuance of a large amount of debt uh, to finance government spending. All right. And am I, uh, this is just the layman here, but the layman says, they don't know what they're doing. That's really corrosive. They just don't know what they're doing. Okay. So three huge shocks. You were in the Reagan administration. You were at the Fed during the administration of George W. Bush. All three of us are old enough to remember when things worked. The two of you have now written a, a white paper here at the Hoover Institution in which Interestingly enough, you say at the outset, we're not going to talk about this or that policy. We're going to talk about deep structure. What's the shape of governance that we need to renew? And you come up with a, what you call a triptych, three, three panels, so to speak. So let's take these one by one. I, your paper, again, is called Reinvigorating Economic Governance. Quote, we employ a triptych as a means for organizing the central elements. Let's just take these one at a time. Ideas is the first of the three from your paper. Unlike other economic goods, ideas are special. How come? So they're special because so much of the discussion through these three shocks you highlighted or something about, this is all zero sum. More for you means less for me. And the fight was, who's gonna get what slice of the pie? But the core to the American ethos, the core to American prosperity, the core to the economic liberty John referenced, is what made the United States special was new ideas. It wasn't the natural endowments of the country, it was the people's ability to generate new ideas. The pie can become bigger. In economic terms, we say ideas are non-rival goods. The more of my idea gets out there, the more value it is for everyone. So the question that we asked ourselves in this paper as this first leg of the triptych is, are we quashing the ability to create new ideas? Or are we giving rise to them? And throughout these three shocks where the extraordinary became ordinary, it strikes us that the implications of this larger, more intrusive government was suppressing this idea generation. And if you were going to run an economy or economic policy in a period of managed decline, that would be fine. But that's what's contrary to the American ethos. I see. And so the focus of economic policy should be on allowing the private sector to create and disseminate new ideas. As Kevin said, that's where economic growth comes from, is the generation and dissemination of new ideas. All right. Panel two of your triptych, individuals. Again, from your paper, the talents, motivations, and decisions of individuals are key determinants of an economy's potential, close quote. Not corporations, individuals. Not even startups, individuals. How come? Well, when you get right down to it, all of human progress depends upon individuals. Individuals working, individuals saving, individuals investing in their own human capital. Where do ideas come from? They come from individuals. How do institutions get formed and what's their purpose? Their purpose is to aggregate individuals. And so if you're looking for, if you will, the ingredient 
to a growing, healthy economy. It always starts with the individual. And uh, to build on that, you described at the outset, individuals aren't companies, they're not government. Here's another thing individuals aren't. They aren't groups. Individuals are different from some group to which we might associate with them by virtue of their socioeconomic status or race or background. Individuals have unique preferences and talents. There was a time that that wasn't such a radical idea. And so what we're trying to do is resuscitate that because those individuals are going to be key to generate the ideas in a way such that American prosperity can drive the next leg of economic growth. Your, your paper is not this pointed, but I'm ask, I want to ask if you, if, here's what I'm asking. Are you then pushing back against the whole notion of identity politics? You are reasserting the claim that we need to think of our fellow citizens as individuals, not as members of a race or a region. We've done way too much to, in, in terms of identity, in particular, if the government thinks of us in terms of identity politics, forget about the rights and wrongs of it. That is not conducive to growth, correct? Are you saying that? In a, yes, in a word, yes. yes. In a word, that's the easiest yes. question we're going to get today. John is nodding to how can Robinson be so slow? Yes, yes. yes. Okay. The third of, of, of the panels on your triptych, and, and the next thing that's going to happen is, well, I'm going to ask you how to apply these, this triptych. What does it tell us about this issue, this issue, and this issue? But here's the third of, of the three panels. Institutions. Again, from reinvigorating economic governance. The quality of a nation's institutions, this is very striking, the quality of a nation's institutions is more important than natural resource endowments. Close quote. How, what do you mean? Both of you. That's a, that's a striking thing to say. So I think it's... The institutions matter that more than the oil in the ground or the natural gas available to frackers? So look at Singapore. Wasn't exactly endowed with the greatest natural resources. Look at other countries, other continents endowed with a great excess of natural resources. But unless the governance regimes in their own way had a triptych of ideas, individuals, and faithful institutions, the natural resources are squandered. So what we're suggesting here, I think, is that institutions matter. And there's this bright line that we seem to have confused in recent years between public institutions and private institutions. Companies are not state actors. They are free and flexible to follow their customers, build new businesses, disrupt, even go out of business. But more and more we hear the heads of private institutions that sound a lot more like politicians. Seems as though they're taking on some quasi-governmental responsibilities. And our own judgment is that's in part been caused by these shocks as the governments encroach more on the world of private institutions like companies companies themselves have also crossed that line. And that's a line that we think should be resurrected. And then within the private sector, uh, excuse me, within the public sector, we think just because something is an important public policy imperative doesn't mean it's the job of every institution to do it. I suppose in the next link, we'll talk about the Federal Reserve in that regard. We're but very our likely to. But yes. our constitutional regime doesn't say that the importance drives which government actor acts. Our regime, it says, is that your job? And if that's your job in government, you should execute that as well as you can, but you shouldn't be trying to compensate for the failings of other parts of the U.S. government. Yeah, so let me come at it in a slightly different way. Mm -hmm. um, 
if you look back over history uh, and ask the question, what produces uh, a sound growing economy? What, what raises uh, standards of living? And the answer is that there are four key institutional arrangements that are essential for uh, uh, human flourishing and uh, economic uh, growth. They're private property, the rule of law, free and competitive markets, and limited government. Countries that have those four institutional arrangements are countries that have succeeded. You go back before the uh, uh, 17th, 18th century, and you find a period of centuries of little or any growth. Economies and standards of living, they just stagnated. We lack those institutions. And then over time, societies gradually understood the importance of those four institutions. And since uh, the development of those institutions, we've seen a world progress like nothing before. And so in a large sense, institutional arrangements, these fundamental institutional arrangements are really important for maximizing the um, individual liberty of individuals to produce, save, invest. The generation of ideas is assisted by the um, uh, development of these institutions. And so we, we think, as we said, this sort of they're interrelated institutions, ideas, and individuals, they're interrelated. And it's the institutions which permit the other two to really flourish. To, to state John's point another way, this is in some ways an old-fashioned document. There's mm -hmm. references to a lot of our fellow scholars in the economics profession, but the real citation here is to the Enlightenment. We're trying to bring the Enlightenment thinking, which created the greatest hockey stick in human history, massive economic growth when the Enlightenment came on and got rid of that stagnation, and try to make it relevant and resonant to the new generation of policymakers, because if not, we're afraid that the line gets very flat again. All right, so, so these, these four institutional principles serve, if you will, Peter, as the foundation for our framework. Right? Okay. And then when you deal with policy, you look at how they, uh, how they uh, uh, are related to these four institutional arrangements. Do they enhance them or do they detract from them? One other point on institutions that I think is very important. One of the motivating factors uh, for us in writing the paper was our concern about um, our public and private institutions and how well they're functioning. That distinction that Kevin made a moment yes. ago? Yes, right. And it's our sense that people have lost some faith in our institutions. There was a recent Gallup poll that I thought was pretty interesting. They um, uh, asked people, do you approve or disapprove of 15 or 16 institutions, police, fire, government institutions? It's fascinating. Every one of these institutions has received less approval now than prior years. The only two institutions today that received a majority approval were small business and the military. All three branches of government are now at their historic lows in the Gallup poll. And other institutions like big business, um, the criminal justice system, news media, are all at 30-year lows. And so there's this general uh, worry that we have about how well our institutions are functioning. Uh, and an important part of any economic governance framework is 
how your institutions are performing. Got it. Got it. Can I? All right. So let's. Now the layman, I've been fumbling along enough as it is, but I'm going to start fumbling even more because you guys know way more about this stuff than I do. All I can do is put a few questions here. Let's now permit me to ask you to apply this framework to current issues. And we'll get to monetary policy and the Fed, which was the first question I have noted here, but you just raised a point. A question occurs to me that you may want to bat away or you may want to take on. I don't know. The notion of corporations, private enterprise, are different from government. And they ought not to be trying to do the government's job. BlackRock, the huge investment operation headquartered in Manhattan, you being you, Kevin, I'm sure you know the people who run that operation because you know the, the financial players on the island of Manhattan. And they have been for the last year or so pushing DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, as one of their central criteria for making investments. They're an enormous operation. They have investments across corporate America. And when BlackRock says, oh, um, we own 4.2% of your company, by the way, we'd now like to review your DEI policies. Is that an example of a private institution crossing into the wrong lane? So it's an example if the government has the, the thumb on the scale. I have no trouble with a private asset manager looking to increase their assets under management by marketing themselves as special and different and applying any three initials ESG, DEI to them. And if they want to separate hardworking people from their hard-earned money by doing that and charging a larger fee than they could on an S&P index, that's how the private market works. But when our government decides that certain types of descriptions, certain types of behaviors by companies give them an extra plus, either the SEC, the bank regulators, or others, then we've crossed that line. But if a, if a company wants to try to raise money through a new marketing scheme, then they're perfectly well to do it. But I think your broader point is right, which is we see financial institutions, both some of which we bailed out in the 08 crisis, some of which have emerged stronger since the crisis, that have decided that um, shareholder capitalism really isn't all that it's cracked up to be. We need some kind of third way. We need to look at stakeholders. Again, if that's a decision of private entities, that's fine. But it appears though that's increasingly becoming the ethos of government policy. Okay, so I was wrong then to ask about BlackRock. They get to try whatever they want. Market yourself any way you want to. I should have asked about the CFTC and the SEC. Government institutions, the chairman of the SEC, Gary Gensler, is that yes. his name? Now I'm just reaching from memory. I don't have this in front of me. You, you two will know. But he is proposing that the SEC adopt rules that will favor companies that pursue certain social policies. Is that not correct? That's a fair statement? And he's wrong to do that. So I'll give a more um, troubling example. All right. Um, the threshold at the SEC for disclosure by public companies used to be this old-fashioned thing called materiality. Is it material to that business? And if so, they should tell the public they're going to invest in those shares to do so. 
But now there's a new idea, which is we're not going to debate whether it's material. We in the government have decided that you are in, uh, engendering grave climate risks. You need to tell us proactively all that you're doing in and around climate in a series of rulemakings that are coming forth from the SEC, separate and apart from materiality. And again, it's fine if companies want to advertise their environmental record, but when the government puts the thumb on the scale and changes the standards, changes the mores, then it's wandering from its day job, it's wandering from its remit, and it's doing something that, I guess as small c conservatives, we find troubling. It's chasing trends, it's chasing fads, and that suppresses economic growth. Instead, uh, yes, it does. In a word, yes. All right. John? Yeah, mis go ahead. the result is inevitably a misallocation of resources. Um, it, there, as Kevin said, in our framework, there is a bright dividing line between what governmental functions are and what private business functions are. And so often in government, when government steps in to uh, uh, interfere in a market on behalf of a particular participant, that has a compounding effect because other participants now see, gee, the government has hung out a shingle, it's open for business, and we are going to get in that business and have them help us. And so what you get is this compounding effect where once you start a small sliver of the economy, government intervening, then you create a demand by other companies for similarly beneficial actions, subsidies, regulations that harm competition, and so forth. And so the worry here is, of course, once you cross that line, uh, you create incentives for further crossing that line. So it's very important to have this, to have this, uh, this separation uh, between the two and to try to maintain as best you can uh, the, the, uh, the separation. And, and John, correct me, this is not the people's representatives duly elected making these decisions. This is the administrative state. Right. This isn't a law signed by the president that we might like or not like, but it's in some sense the will of the people. This is a group of experts across the government. It's taken on their own to capture the, 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 the sense of the season. And, you know, and, and, that, and one index of the health, one index of the extent to which government is straying outside its correct duties is the size of K Street in Washington. When you and I served in the Reagan administration, I don't remember the expenditures, but we, you could go back and look this up the expenditures in real terms on lobbyists was X, and today it is closer to 10X. Correct? Correct. Why are housing values in and around Washington, D.C., now among the highest in the nation? Whereas when we were back there, uh, it was sort of in the middle. And the answer is lobbyists. The answer is rent-seeking behavior on the part of companies uh, uh, to try to influence the government to favor them. Uh, and it's manifest now like it has never been manifest. And this is, this is a tremendous, I believe it's tremendously important. So if you're in a competitive industry and you say to yourself, I can spend X billion dollars on R&D, my outcomes are uncertain, my expenses are enormous, I'm not sure when I'll get a new product out of all of this, the market, all that is very, very hard. Or I can spend another $15 million a year on lobbyists in Washington and tie up my, my opponents. My, that's what's going, that's what, when you say misallocation of resources, you mean resources shifting over to gaming 
the government and away from the actual production of goods and services. Have I got that right? Yes, and th that protection that they achieve from the government prevents uh, new entrants, and new entrants are the companies and individuals with new ideas. And so when you prevent entry into the industry, uh, you're uh, impairing the ability of an economy to move forward through the generation of new ideas. Okay, fiscal policy. This one's, uh, both of you come in, of course, but, but Kogan here knows more about fiscal policy Agreed. than anybody, anybody should really. Um, <laughs> the size of the most recent, but w w when you were at OMB, what was the rough size of the federal budget? Oh my gosh, it was around $600 billion. And you thought that was outrageous. It was, it okay. was. All right. Here's the size of the most recent budget President Biden signed into law, 5.8 trillion. Now, that's down a little bit from the previous year's budget of about 6 trillion because COVID spending gets phased out, but the Biden budget contains about 1.6 trillion in new spending. The budget contains billions, tens of billions, for example, to pay for last year's infrastructure bill and American Rescue Plan, and this year's, I'm giving the formal names of these pieces of legislation, this year's, get ready for this one, Inflation Reduction Act, close quote. Okay, so, Kogan and Warsh, ideas, individuals, institutions, help me as a layman, these numbers are enormous, we have inflation and it's going up. They passed an Inflation Reduction Act. It seems to be pushing the, what, what's going on? And how can this be fixed? Fiscal policy, what the federal government raises in taxes and spends and borrows. Well, you said, Peter, things have really gotten out of control. I mean, they've been bad for the last 60 years. So in the last 60 years, the budget has been balanced or run a surplus in only five of them. In the other years, we've George W. Destined. Bush was one of, was the most recent. Is that right? Well, his first year, right before the 9/11 uh, and the recession. Right. Okay. Sweeped so in one balanced budget before 9/11. Four, four of those five, of course, were high tech years when we had the high tech bubble in the late 1990s, and that wasn't a consequence of government restraint on spending. Believe me, that was a consequence of a gusher of revenues from high techs. The definition of a surplus is when the money comes in so fast that even Congress can't spend it all. <laughs> very good. That very right? good. That's right. a very, that's I remember you. That's, a, that's <laughs> a Kogan formulation. All right. <laughs> that's right. What's amazing about the current Congress is the money has come in rapidly and Congress has outspent that. Let me give you an example. So we just finished fiscal year 2022 on Friday. Okay. So the numbers are not quite final, but we have 11 months of data. We kind of know where we're going to land. Okay, when Treasury comes out with its estimates uh, in a couple of weeks. Between 2019, right before the pandemic hit, and 2022, federal revenues increased by 40%. And this year, the Biden administration will report that the deficit for 2022 was a trillion dollars. So, they not only outspent the 40%, they went even beyond that. And that doesn't count the student loan forgiveness, which will certainly have a big effect on the, on the budget, uh, and, and, uh, and the lower economic growth that I think we're, we're, we're seeing towards the end of the year. So Kevin, John just said something 
the budget's been out of control for six decades. It's over. What, what this, I mean, how, how do you, I'm asking a serious point. The two of you write a white paper, which by the way, I should say, it's intensely frustrating that the paper is so much richer than we can get to in this conversation. Any viewer can go to the Hoover Institution website and Google on Kogan and Warsh, it'll pop up. But what's the point? Honestly and truly, is there any real prospect of restoring some semblance of sanity, reasonableness, if the, if the whole thing has been out of control for six decades? It hasn't been out of control anything like this. All right. There's out of control yeah. and there's really out of control. Going back to the first day I walked into Kogan's office when I was 19, as, as you, and as You're you can see, I, I have never left. But George Shultz used to tell his young protégés and John and me, you know, government policy doesn't have to be perfect, but it just can't be too, too destructive. Well, we've gotten to the point where it's just too, too destructive. So what happened? I should just add one fiscal point, and John will correct me. It's not just that we had a gush of revenue in these periods. The United States government is a third bigger than it was the day before COVID. And while those revenues will no doubt fall off as we enter what's got all the makings of a global recession, I think John and I would agree uh, the government isn't going to be shrinking then. In fact, they'll be figuring out a way to try to offset that pain. So let me just try to offer one uh, explanation of how it went from quite bad fiscal and monetary policy for a very long time, but serviceable to one that is so dangerous. Um, because of the shocks you outlined at the beginning, the Federal Reserve decided to take on more responsibility than it ever had before. When I joined the Fed in 2006, it was an important organization with a printing press, but quite a narrow remit. We were going to ensure that prices were stable. From those years until these years through the shock, it's expanded its authority. When crises hit, like in the 08 crisis and in the 2020 pandemic crisis, it is the Fed's job to do some extraordinary things. But when those shocks disappear, it's this faithful institution's job to go back to ordinary course stuff. But instead, they kept zero interest rates and massive buying of the debt securities from the Treasury in all seasons and for all reasons. So just one fun statistic. Last year, 2021, a virtual economic boom in the U.S. Real economic growth was 5.7%, ranking among the strongest economic years since World War II. Or as we come out from under COVID. As we're coming out from under the recovery COVID. recovery looks good. The recovery looks fragile, but at least empirically strong. All right. Jobs are being created. The economy is strong. Prices and inflation is moving higher. So in a year like that, where would we guess the Fed should be? Well, I'll tell you where they were. In 2021, they bought 54% of all the debt issued by the Treasury Department. More than half of the net issuance was bought by the friendly Federal Reserve. And that was not a crisis year. It was a boom year. That's the sign of an institution that went past its remit, that outstayed its welcome, that decided that the crisis maybe is continuing in some sense, and thereby sowed the seeds of what we have in front of us now, which I would describe as a major inflation problem that I will describe. I don't want to associate this with my co-author unless he signs up too. These economic institutions in the last couple of years have made the largest economic policy error since the 1970s, and there is a price to pay for it. Jerome Powell, chairman of the Federal Reserve, in December last year, less than a year ago, 
inflation is, quote, transitory, close quote, meaning that, quote, it won't leave a permanent mark, close quote. We are now four interest rates, four interest rate hikes later, including two so-called jumbo hikes of 75 basis points each. <clears throat> can you give me, can you compare what's happening now and your degree of confidence in what's happening now with what Paul Volcker did when he was chairman of the Fed to wring inflation out of the economy during the end of the Carter and the beginning of the Reagan administration. Is that a useful thing to ask? Because I'm, tr what I'm, what I'm so struck by your, the government has screwed up everything it's touched forever. But it didn't used to be too destructive. That's the kind of comparison. Is that a useful thing to say? What, Volcker versus Powell. That's what I'm asking. What do you sure. So, so these periods aren't perfectly analogous, but there's something to the analogy that you make. Right. And in some sense, I think the heart of our paper, Peter, is to summon what Milton Friedman said in 1978-1979, when he said then, never in my life have I seen a period with more danger and more hope than the moment in which we're now in. And that was the, the year end, again, 1978-1979. And he felt the country was at one of those tipping points from the ashes, from the despair. If we get policy right, there could be a boom that would come and you would become a speechwriter as part of that boom. If we get it wrong. With Kogan marking up all my speeches, taking, all, <laughs> taking out all the good stuff. All right, go ahead. So Only the expansions happen to sneak in every once in a while. John told me that speechwriters weren't allowed to ever dictate policy. So I don't <laughs> want to relitigate that. But at, but at that moment, that was the seminal moment. So where are we today? In some sense, our risk, the concern we have that motivates the paper, is this the opposite of 1981? In 1981, what was happening? Paul Volcker, who said, not on my watch. We will stop inflation, and we will then, over the next 25 years, have interest rates fall. That's a huge, huge uplift for an economy. At that point, coming through the Carter administration and the Reagan administration, massive deregulation, massive ability to give those animal spirits back, to make those parts of our triptych work. Where are we now? If anything, we're doubling down on re-regulating because of these shocks. In 1981, where were we? We thought that this might be uh, the beginning after a Cold War that you helped win of a durable peace and integrated global economy. Where are we now? The global economy is being ripped apart. The G2 rivalries has everyone taking sides, moving to two spheres of influence. These, this is the opposite of that period. And so the question you ask is the right one. Is the leadership of the Fed prepared now, having really missed the boat early on to quash inflation, now that it is front page news, now that every kitchen table, every boardroom is talking about the unstable prices, high prices, are they prepared and willing to do what's necessary? And now I'll have to admit at substantially higher costs than would have been the case a year ago to beat these high prices out of the economy because ultimately what inflation does is it distracts households and businesses from allocating capital properly and preoccupies them with something they can scarcely control. That is this moment. Yeah, so let me add a little bit to what, uh, what Kevin's saying. It really is the case that it wasn't just Paul Volcker 
And it's not just Chairman Powell that's produced the inflation. We'll also have to look at the fiscal side and the regulatory side, as Kevin mentioned. That is, the policies that the Biden administration is following now are restricting supply. The regulatory policies are restricting supply. You see it most acutely in the energy sector, but it extends uh, out into the labor markets as well. Um, back in the Reagan days, and preceded by Carter, we saw a deregulation of energy. We saw an increase in, in, in supply as a consequence of the policies pursued. So the fiscal, on the fiscal side, is even, the divergence is even greater. We have an administration that continues to promote expansions in government spending. Today. No. Today. Uh, back then, Reagan's fiscal policy was very consistent with Volcker's uh, monetary policy. Reagan wanted to cut spending, which is ultimately the source, I think, of inflation, lower tax rates to increase uh, incentives for greater supply. In the Biden administration, you have more spending on tap, higher taxes on tap. The deficit being at a trillion dollars is exactly contrary to the fiscal policy that you would want to tame inflation. Okay. So let me turn, again, this is frustrating because we, well, maybe we should just go for three hours and, <laughs> and, and just assume that by the end we'll only have two listeners left and it'll be Mrs. Kogan and Mrs. Warsh. <laughs> My wife never listens. Uh, but here's, to shift from what, what's happening, to shift from policymakers to, fall back, again, I'm a layman, I'm putting all of this crudely, in the first instance, the first redress is to shift the policy, change policymakers. So Biden's in charge now, Biden and the Democrats are in charge. And I look around and say, what is the opposition saying? Let me quote to you from Marco Rubio, Senator of Florida, and a conservative. This is Marco, Ruby speak Marco Rubio speaking a couple of years ago, which I emphasize because this is something that's in Republican thinking now. Quote, a fundamental shift in the U.S. economy has occurred over the last four decades, fair enough so far, driven by the consensus that the goal of business is to maximize financial return, leading to suffering on the part of the American worker and American industry. Close quote. So this is the notion that business offshored to Mexico first and then to China and hollowed out our manufacturing. You know the whole argument. But this is Marco Rubio, intelligent, well-spoken, surely a presidential candidate, a past presidential candidate, surely a candidate in the future. And he is saying the kinds of things that you say two seconds before you announce a new industrial policy which used to be anathema to Republicans. What's going on? So I think the problem is one of diagnosis, I think. Um, you know, uh, Mr. Rubio's sentiments, I think we'd agree, are good sentiments. He's concerned about the plight of the American worker. He's concerned about the plight of the American family. He is saying, this much is true. He's saying, I look at what's happened over the recent decades, and ordinary good people got screwed. Right. Right? And he's not wrong about he's that. He's not wrong. Okay. Not, right. Where he's wrong is that if you listen to what he's saying about policy, it seems that he's presuming that markets have failed and therefore government needs to step in. What he should be saying first is 
Gee, has government policy created the problem? Have we made workers worse off because of the labor market restrictions that have been imposed over the last 20 years? Have we made it worse off by taxing corporations uh, so much so that they don't invest in worker skills? Um, he needs to refocus. And what we're hoping is that our, our framework would help someone like Mr. Rubio focus on uh, market-oriented policies to fix uh, problems, rather than just to, to go to, here's another government program for this problem, here's another one for that problem. Yeah. Well, let, let me say this, mm -hmm. when I think back on, um, on uh, Donald Trump's performance as a president on economic policy, um, it seems that Mr. Trump, if you will, provides a good example of what happens to a politician that doesn't have a sound economic framework underlying their policies. So if you look at what he did on tax policy and deregulation, it was extraordinarily beneficial to the economy. Wages of all workers went up. Wages of high school educated workers went up the most. Or we're talking about the first two years, roughly three, the before, first before, half, the COVID. Year, before COVID. Before COVID right. hits, that changes everything. But right. there were two and a half, almost three, three years of good really years. Good there. years, right? The economy grows and the right. uh, poverty uh, rates come down. Poverty rates come down, and for the first time in decades, again, as I recall, as I understand it, there's a growth in real income for ordinary working Americans. Is that not correct? That is absolutely correct. And the largest increases were registered by those in the lower half of the income distribution. That's so that's exactly what we want. Exactly. All right. Right. And his tax and regulatory policies were the driving force behind those outcomes. But then if you look at tariffs, worked in exactly the opposite direction. If you look at his response when COVID hit, what was it? Recommended lockdowns, right? Completely against the fundamental principles of the fundamental institutional relationships that have generated. He, he let public problem. health bureaucrats take over exactly. his presidency. Exactly. Is that roughly? Roughly. There was no philosophy. The point, though, is that there was no philosophy there. There was no underlying set of principles that was motivating his policies. So he got it right on some occasions. And then on other occasions, with the lockdowns and so forth, he got it massively wrong. If you don't have your principles in place, then when a crisis hits, your response is just random. You may get it as wrong. Exactly right. Or, okay. John and I receive calls periodically from friends of ours on Capitol Hill. Uh, and what do you think of this policy? Right. But what we often hear is, I don't know how to think about it. Are we for it or against it? Well, where's the other side? What we're trying to do is give a framework that if you believe this framework, you'll then be able to think through that policy idea. Okay. I'll just make one, one final sure. point on, on, on the American worker and Senator Rubio's comment. The most harm, the most regressive tax that we could possibly have come up with, never mind made a part of the economic situation, is this inflation. If you were trying to do harm to the American worker, you would have inflation that's at 10%, and a year ago you would dismiss it as temporary. What happened really between the shock of the 2008 crisis and the shock of the 2020 crisis, we had inflation, but those of us in the top half of the in income distribution did quite well with it. It was asset price inflation, and that was driven by extraordinary Fed policies by and large. Subsequent to the, 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 uh, can the I just, pandemic. Can, uh, again, the effect of that policy 
the Fed floods the economy with liquidity and it drifts to assets and it makes rich people even richer. And Marco Rubio sees that too. And he's not wrong, correct? He's not wrong, but 52% of our fellow Americans own no financial assets, no equity in their home, no 401k plan, no account over at Schwab. And so they said, what was in it for me? During the first part of the Trump administration, they finally got their real wage increases. They said, maybe it took a while, but it's finally coming. But because this massive fiscal spending and extraordinary monetary uh, accommodation happened well into the cycle, that same 52% are having a cost of living squeeze, dividing the country yet again in the name of trying to unite it. And that is the most dangerous policy, especially at this moment in time. And so when policymakers say, we're gonna run a hot economy, we're keeping rates zero for you, we're gonna do more of these bailouts for you, Real Americans right now are saying, I don't need that kind of help because my real wages are falling further and further behind. And, and I, that's what's created I this perilous to, moment. I can't afford to tank up anymore. That's exactly right. So one more question on, 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 on what's in Republican thinking, what, what, what we see. So let me quote to you, President Trump's U.S. trade rep, Robert Lighthizer, known to both of you. Also, I think we can agree, certainly a patriot and also an intelligent person. This is Robert Lighthizer writing last year. International trade, international trade has largely failed America. America has shipped trillions of dollars of wealth to foreign countries in return for goods, often short-term consumer goods. Our trading partners use those dollars to purchase American assets and debt instruments. In a real sense, America is trading ownership of its productive assets and economic future for short-term consumption, for cheap t-shirts at Walmart, we're giving up control of the American economy to the Chinese and others. Plausible argument. And the correct answer is the Kogan-Warsh triptych, ideas, individuals, institutions. How does that help me think about the Lighthizer attack on free trade so the Lighthizer attack translates into a policy of protectionism. Yes. Right. Raise tariffs. Right. Correct. Right. And in our triptych, um, trade among individuals is a natural liberty. That is, all individuals should be able to trade freely among themselves. You get to say what you want, and you get to trade with ever, with anybody you want. Right. And it includes a, domestically mm-hmm. and includes internationally. And so we think of these uh, protectionist policies as restrictions on individual liberties, as restrictions on uh, what makes uh, an economy uh, grow. And you've got to keep in mind that the harm that's done by these uh, tariffs is substantial. But we don't see it because it's spread uh, across the entire economy. Um, when we impose a tariff on imported goods, the price of imported goods rises. But it's also the case that imports are used in the production of goods here in the United States. So even those domestically produced goods, their costs rise. Something like 60% of all imports are inputs into U.S. production. And so there's a lot of cross-border... Lumber from China that goes into American houses. Right. 
glass from Mexico that goes into American cars. That, right, that, right, oh, right. Mm -hmm. So the increase in... Lumber from Canada. Canada. Me. Sorry. So the increase in prices throughout the economy from tariffs, even if there is no retaliation, uh, is really high. But what, we, what, what politicians find good about tariffs is the benefits in terms of jobs, if you will, protected. Those are very, very apparent. And they can point to them. The cost of lost jobs because of higher costs, the loss of real incomes on the part of consumers because prices have risen, those just can't be directly tied by a politician or by anybody to, um, uh, to, uh, to the uh, to tariffs. And so the, that we all share the costs doesn't mean they aren't real. Right. That's right. They're just hard to see. And so the political equation is quite unbalanced. And so you get arguments like uh, Lighthizer's uh, that these tariffs are really uh, good for America. And, and I, listen, I think Bob's right in that this G2 rivalry, well, G2, like yeah. the, the United States and our allies against China and their allies, whether we like it or not, will likely define the 21st century. And if we think back to the framework you outlined at the beginning of this ideas, individuals, institutions, the direction that the US policy is going is the Chinese direction. Strip away the individual preferences of institutions. They're nothing more than cogs in the machine. Don't have to create new ideas. You can steal them. You can just steal them from someone else. And after all, we're really just fighting among ourselves and institutions. There's only one institution that matters. It's being driven by President Xi and the CCP. So all those red lines we talked about, those are all gray. We can cross them all. That's the broad direction of policy. Obviously, the CCP is an extreme version of that. It strikes us at core. If you want to win the G2 rivalry, which is in some sense analogous to the description we had of the 1980s, the best way to do that is not to imitate the policies of your adversaries, but double down on the policies that created the greatest economic miracle that made the biggest improvement to humankind. And what bothers us, we seem to be slouching towards that other model. And at this moment in time, given the threat economically from a national security perspective, and even more broadly to society, this is the moment to double down on what worked. But this isn't a call back to sort of Reaganism. Yep. This is a call forward. Okay, so one last question about policy. And then I want to return to this, this notion of underlying structure in closing, if, if I may. Um, you just said we're talking about going forward. But actually, I would like to ask a question. In some way, what, we're say what you're suggesting here is that we need a renewal today as sweeping, as uplifting as the renewal that took place during the 1980s. I, right? Okay. So again, I'm the layman here. I'm flipping through my news and I see, what all, all, as we record this, this is the big economic news of the last week, that there's a new prime minister in Britain, Liz Truss, and she puts in, she announces a, a kind of mini Kogan and Warsh program. She's going to get around to peeling back regulations. That takes a while, but what she announces right away is a tax cut in the top rate from 45% down to 40%. Doesn't sound all that generous to me, but still, that's what, <laughs> that's what she does. And there is such an uproar, and the pound sterling so tanks that a couple of days ago she reverses herself and says, no, I'm gonna leave that top rate exactly where it is. 
And here's what The Economist magazine says. She misunderstood the Reagan record. So this is important. If you're trying a renewal based at least loosely on something that happened some decades ago, you need to understand what happened those decades ago. And here's what The Economist magazine says Prime Minister Truss missed. The Reagan program's early record was mixed. The tax cuts did not stop a deep recession, yet by March 1984, annual inflation had risen back to 4.8%, and America's bond prices reflected fears of another upward spiral in prices. Inflation was anchored only after Congress had raised taxes. Close quote. So the Reagan expansion begins as a result of tax hikes. <laughs> <laughs> and there you go. That is... But uh, if, if they're rewriting what actually happened, you... Uh, uh, that's what, uh, what did happen, really, when it comes to it. What, what happened in the 80s? So the 80s, uh, to, to me, it was a very uh, consistent set of policies and monetary policy and fiscal policy. The monetary policy, as we know, was the tightening. The fiscal policy was to increase the supply of goods. It takes time for a policy like tax cuts or interest rates hikes to work. Flags might be six months, might be uh, a year. George Schultz used to call them the economist's nightmare was the lag because the politicians always wanted their actions uh, right. to, to generate results immediately. But I have to say, we have never had an economic recovery as sustained as we had in the 1980s. So once we got through this um, uh, sharp recession, we had economic growth that was unparalleled in any other decade, but perhaps the 1960s and the post-war period. The policies became, broadly speaking, bipartisan. Bill Clinton is elected in the 90s, and he does not monkey around with taxes much. There's a little raise here and a little raise there, but he permits the basic regime. This is in the form of a question, by the way. I'm giving you my memory. Bill Clinton permits the basic low tax regime of the Reagan years to remain in place, and he gives a speech in which a State of the Union address in which he says the era of big government is over. Clinton claims limited government for his side. We Democrats now embrace limited government. Is that correct? So that, 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 was, the, that was the triptych working so well that the political economy adopts it. Right. Now, there's different flavors between Democrats and Republicans in the early 1990s, but you had agreed on a sort of period of peace and prosperity and what you could do to achieve that. Jim Carville and others might have had little tricks on the margin, but we had a consensus. When you read the criticisms of Prime Minister Truss now 30 days into her prime ministership, I can't but help but note two things. It's quite convenient to blame her and a single speech for a decline in the Great British Pound that's now been happening for a couple of years. It's quite convenient to blame her for this inflation, which has now been part of the UK experiment for a couple of years. And in fact, the move up in guilts that happened in and around this question about tax cuts. Are you talking about financial instruments, not moral pangs? Yes. <laughs> right. All right. So, so this is the risk-free rate of the United Kingdom. Blame her in this one speech. I think that's really quite unfair. So just to give a simple example, she announced about a week before the tax cuts that there would be a bailout. So the government would pay for all the higher energy prices 
So consumers wouldn't have to pay the surge in their energy bills. Corporations wouldn't have to pay for the surge in their en energy bills. That amount of money from the uh, fiscal authorities in Britain is more than twice what the cost would have been of the whole tax package. But I didn't hear the economists right. barking about how uncomfortable that was. That was the obvious thing to do. So I think this might be more politics than economics. And uh, we need to encourage uh, people that believe in the triptych, not just in the United States, but around the world to not be ones that are getting wobbly so early into their tenure. You know, Peter, you, you make a, uh, raise a very, very good point though. Uh, at, uh, and I think it's one about uh, why we should be uh, optimistic uh, at this point. You go back to the 70s, it was a very bad decade. Um, you saw a, a Reagan policies that uh, followed what we think are sound uh, economic uh, governance principles. You saw a tremendous economic growth. And as you put it, we saw that view about limited government being continued throughout the 1990s. Right? By Democrats. It by becomes Democrats. bipartisan. That's right. Well, I think it was... In, 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 yes. in large. Right. Right. It was also bipartisan during the Reagan days. As you recall, the House was, um, was uh, ruled by the Democrats. Right. Uh, there were 30, uh, 35 so-called bold weevils, right. Southern right. Uh, Democrats usually, who voted with Reagan. Right, right, right. And so his policies generated a bipartisan support. But the point I think I want to make is that it's only when people realize in their pocketbooks or in their lifestyles that things are going wrong for them, that they start thinking about policy and how there needs to be a change. And what we saw in the, in the 1980s and 1990s was the success of the policies of the 1980s in improving the lives of individuals led to its continuation in the 1990s. People are now sensing the same kind of angst that they did in the 1970s. We have the same inflation problem. It's not as long as it was in the 70s, but we have the same inflation problem. People are questioning the institutions just as they did in the late 1970s. Uh, and so there is good reason to believe that people will be responsive to a set of policies that uh, would get us out of this quagmire that we're in. Um, and so I'm very optimistic when I look back at history. I, I have to say it's only when the American public wakes up to the harm that's being done by policies in their lives that they um, decide uh, for a change. John, here's my problem. I've known you for a long time now. You've always been optimistic. So here, th that sets up Someday. a real... <laughs> that sets up a, a sort of a closing question here. Back to this underlying structures, question of underlying structures. A couple of quotations here. You cite the economist Joseph Schumpeter, who in 1942 produced a book called Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy. And you mention this very famous book, and you say he predicted the demise of capitalism that capitalism contains within itself, the very bounty that capitalism produces tends to create the conditions for ideas that tend to thwart capitalism and close it off. Capitalism leads to socialism, says he. A couple of quotations here. Marxism, this is from Schumpeter, 1942, Marxism is essentially a product of the bourgeois mind. Yeah, well, you know what? So is wokeism, right? 
College kids who are worried about getting a job when they graduate don't mess around um, with wokeism. It's the college kids who've grown up during a period of peace and prosperity who have the luxury. Okay, you get the point I'm trying to make. Here's Schumpeter again. Capitalism inevitably, and by virtue of the very logic of the civilization it creates, educates and subsidizes a vested interest in social unrest, which looked at one way, a vested interest in social unrest is a pretty good description of a large part of the American university system today. Okay, now I quote you guys. In your paper, you say, we strongly disagree. What the heck makes you so sure you're right? And I'm going to go to Kevin first because you're always optimistic, John. So I've got to be an optimist serious, here serious, too. Serious question here. When the virtues seem to erode, the other thing you guys write is that a robust civil society, our triptych, ideas, individuals, and institutions, seeks to cultivate virtue. That's a very serious and sweeping claim. That's, um, that, that, that's a word that would require a safe space on a college campus like this. We, we use words in this paper like culture, like virtue. We cite um, Enlightenment thinking going back to the voluntary associations of de Tocqueville, the little platoons of Burke. And we ask ourselves, are they alive today? Can they be rekindled? And I guess I'd say two things. One, in spite of our government's best efforts to destroy that underlying American ethos, our government has failed. If you go out onto a factory floor in Toledo, a unionized plant, whatever you want, there are workers there trying to figure out how to be more productive, how to get that car off that assembly line. You go not just to Silicon Valley, but to the center of the country. There are people that amid COVID said, I'm gonna start hang out my own shingle and start my own company, give it a shot. And this is with our government making this harder and harder. So we don't think we've yet destroyed that ethos. And I'll make one sec, one final point. If we want to look at that model, that Marxist model, the good news or bad news is we can look to the other side of the world. The President Xi and the Chinese Communist Party are in a war with us, but it's not the war we often hear about. We are in a fight with them to see who can destroy the golden goose that created the prosperity in the US and China. And believe it or not, the Chinese are winning. They are destroying their golden goose even faster than we are. And we see it in the last couple of years. So we have an example, much like you had in the 1980s, of a choice to make. And we think this is a time for choosing. And the American people will lead the American political class, having now been to peak wokeism and peak government intrusion and restrictions on liberty. This is the moment where the American people can speak, not as Democrats or Republicans, but as Americans. John? So you have to ask yourself, was Schumpeter right? What, what does history say? I think history would say that Schumann Peter was dead wrong. It's almost been 100 years since he wrote, right? And what have we seen since? The Soviet system collapsed of its own weight. America has, has, has really grown. China had this period of extraordinary economic progress. Why? Because it embraced capitalism. It embraced markets. Sadly, as Kevin said, it's gone the other way now under Xi. Hold on. That's really important. That the correct way to understand, excuse me, you hear it said over and over and over again, that whatever is going on in China lifted something like half a billion or more people 
out of really abject poverty. And that creates a certain legitimacy of its own. But the correct analysis is that China lifted those people up. China didn't lift anybody out of property. Those people were given the freedom. That's what the Chinese government did. It backed away long enough to permit economic growth to take place. That's the correct conclusion. Not that dictatorial powers, a, a well-meaning communist, that's not, okay. I've got that right? You said it better than I. Uh, that's very seldom, John, but all right. 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 So the upshot is the world, in some sense, has gone the other way from Schumpeter. Right? They've gone more to capitalism, and they, people have seen that when you have a capitalist system, when you have free markets, private property, a rule of law, and you limit government, government steps back, you see progress, you see a human flourishing. And I think when in America, as people come to grips with the inflation that's hit us, the likely recession that, that we're going to see uh, down the road, people could say, what got us into this? And their answer is going to be too much regulation, too much spending, too much debt. And as we saw in the 1980s, that'll begin to change eventually the political uh, leadership uh, and a new direction uh, will come about. Okay, last question. First, John, and then Kevin. And it's the same question to both of you. We are seated at the Hoover Institution, which in turn is in the middle of a great university. Young as Kevin is, he, he still remembers the 80s. You and I actually lived through it, old as we are. Um, a freshman who just arrived on the Stanford University campus at the age of 18 was born after Ronald Reagan died, was born after the Berlin Wall fell, has no memory of what we're talking about. Can you give me the tightest statement you can on what that, what an, what, a, what this rising generation, of, I'm talking about Stanford, but of course all college kids, all, all, all kids, what the rising generation of Americans needs to grasp about what we need to do to promote economic growth again. John. Well, Peter, I, I would go back to, um, I guess, what I said at the beginning. Um, the four institutional arrangements that are essential uh, for getting uh, a rise in standard of living. And by the way, when we say rising standard of living, we mean more than just wealth. We mean the quality of life, your health, uh, safe neighborhoods, and so forth. The way decent school, decent schools. The way you get to that is by building your policies on these four institutional arrangements: private property, the rule of law, free and competitive markets, and limited government. You get those four institutional arrangements as the foundation of your policies, and apply the framework that we have, that is look at their effects, look at the policy's effects on the three essential ingredients of any economy, ideas, individuals, and institutions. And uh, you will get a set of policies that will cause a great turnaround uh, in the American economy. And I think a, a prospect for uh, tremendous non-inflationary growth uh, in the economy and in our standards of living generally uh, considered. Kevin, closing statement to 18-year-olds. So I hope when he arrives at campuses like this, uh, from the leadership of the institution, he hears something that says what matters most 
around here is what do you think? We also care about how you feel about things, but the university is about a search for truth. And what we're going to try to do in your next four years is expose you to the best that's been written and said. And at the end of that, we're not going to tell you what you have to believe. We're going to let you pursue your own preferences and talents. And this will, in fact, be a safe place where you can fight about those ideas. And if we create that culture, then I'm every bit as optimistic as John. The 21st century will be the American century again. And this will not be a century of managed decline where we hide and run away. John Kogan and Kevin Warsh of the Hoover Institution, authors of Reinvigorating Economic Governance. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. Thanks, Peter. For Uncommon Knowledge and the Hoover Institution, I'm Peter Robinson.